Well, I wonder how you would act if you were sitting in a courtroom, recognizing and knowing that this is the biggest trial that has ever happened. This is the biggest trial of your life. It's being covered by everyone else. The most important people are there, and the results determine everything. It's kind of exciting, right? Someone takes the stand, holds up their right hand, and says that they swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help me God. Now imagine sitting in that courtroom, recognizing that the reason someone took the stand was to tell the whole truth, nothing but the truth, about you. What would they say about you? An absolute truth. If they were going to characterize you, your heart, your life, your soul, everything with absolute pure truth, what would they say? My sermon this morning comes from the book of Romans, chapter 3, verses 10 through 18. And in this, it is one of the most damning and exhaustive combinations of psalms, I think, that can ever be pieced together in our scriptures. The writer of this book, the writer of this letter, these words, the Apostle Paul, what he does is he takes Old Testament psalms that testify about you in different places, and then he actually lines them up as to bestow and display the full account of your life on its own. Now, these words you may notice in your own copy of the Bible, they, they look a little bit different than the words above them and below them. We just see that practically. That, that ought to mean there's something happening there. If you're just a common reader of the Bible, anytime something is indented like this, or maybe in all caps, it ought to capture your attention. And the reason why this is spaced out and indented differently is because these are quotes. Now, one helpful way to understand what this text is doing in the great tradition of uh, the prophetic tradition of the Old Testament scriptures, much of the teaching of the prophets, you think of those prophetic books of the Old Testament, those casting out of pearls to God's people, hoping that they would respond in repentance, that the testimony or the format of these Old Testament prophets were, when they were speaking on behalf of God, were to argue a guilty person in a corner in such a way as to have that guilty person in a corner now feel boxed in to where the only response that they could do is call out in confession of which they were guilty of. So the argumentation style of the prophetic books of the past, and even in Paul's argument within Romans chapter 3, is to box us in a corner to where we can only recognize what is truly being said about this. Paul makes it plain in this section that this is exactly what he's doing. You take chapter 3 as a whole, and you can imagine he's arguing like you would in a courtroom, the way that Paul, who was a trained lawyer at that time, the way that he would have argued would be from didactic form into uh, prophetic form to where you are pinned up against the wall to where you could imagine everyone in this book or this courtroom scene saying, aha, he's got him, to where all they can do is say, I am who you say I am, in the form of a prophet who speaks on behalf of God. So within chapter 3, you have this set of fiery questions, bold statements, Nothing but punch after punch after punch. My, my section uh, separates all these clauses to where their own lines. And it's all in caps. In fact, in, in my passage of the Scripture, it's not that yours is worse or less if yours are not in all caps, but it's, it's trying to bring my attention to this. Paul, before us, is writing this text 
as a prosecuting apostle on behalf of God, intending to tell you who you are, putting you in a corner so that you'll understand ultimately to where you can respond to what God is calling you to respond to. Now, let me take a step back. Last week, I want you to think of last week's sermon, that, that passage from Scripture, as an introduction to today and, Lord willing, the next four weeks. My, my goal in these six weeks as a total is to preach to you a, a simple and understandable way of approaching the Bible. If you were taking the Bible as a whole and someone were to say, how would you dummy it down, just give it to me in a couple of statements or a couple of questions or a couple of clauses, how can I see it simply, clearly, and even applicationally, which is not a word, but it makes a lot of sense when you say it out loud. And if you say it confidently, then it becomes a word. How can, how can the scriptures be simple and clear and applicationally to our lives? Now, now the Bible is arranged exactly how God intended it to be arranged. So I, I want to encourage you to read it all the way through and see Christ from beginning to end. But also, it may help you to understand that the Bible can be understood um, systematically. The Bible can be understood systematically, meaning that there are reoccurring, as the Bible evolves and as it unfolds, not evolves, unfolds, as the Bible unfolds, there are reoccurring doctrines and truths that just continually seep to the top. And, and a doctrine is a belief held by Christians. So there are these beliefs that are commonly held by Christians today that are evident all throughout Scripture. They show themselves again and again. So you might think of the doctrine of Christ. What do, Christ, what do Christians believe about Christ? Well, how does Christ come up in Scripture? What do, what do Christians believe about a doctrine of sin or a doctrine of parenting or a doctrine of working when you don't want to work? What, what does the Bible say about these categories, theologies, doctrines, on and on? So that's what I hope to do in the next five weeks or the next four weeks after this week. And I hope that they'll be in the form of questions, or I know they'll be in the form of questions. So today's question is, in simple form, as you look at the Bible systematically, do you need Christ? So if you read the Bible, I think an initial way to look at the Scripture is aiming to answer the question, do you need Christ? And also seeing repeatedly throughout Scripture the intended desire of the authors of these books to show you that you on the regular, you overwhelmingly need Christ. Now, if I were to ask you, do you need Christ? This is the doctrine of depravity, the doctrine of need. Some of you might immediately say, yes. Why? I mean, it's a great VBS song, right? Yes, yes, yes. But why? Now, some of you may be more skeptical. I don't really need him. I feel like I can get along just fine without him. I seem to be doing well at this point. I'm 45 years old. Why do I need Christ? Now, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, I'm certainly glad you're here. Uh, I'm going to be one of those old school weirdo preachers who say, and I mean it, that I, I don't think you're here today on accident. I think this is a God-appointed time for you to be here. So all I want to ask, and I think I can respond for everyone here, I think everyone would ask, is that you just think alongside us as we see from the Scriptures our need for Christ. So I'm going to try to argue from the Bible, non-Christian, why I think we Christians believe that we need Christ in all of our life. So I just want to ask you to think with us on this. Now, for everyone, honestly, why do you need Christ? I think the simple answer is you need Christ because you are 
exactly what the scriptures say you are. So let's examine this in full. If you're using a bulletin uh, or an outline that's provided on the bulletin, I've got two main points with four minor points in the first point. So I'm on point one, bullet point one, where we just want to recognize who are we. So you are, what the scriptures plainly say, is that you are outside of Christ. This terminology is called totally depraved or absolutely depraved. You might even write down the word depraved. The doctrine of depravity or the doctrine of total depravity reflects the biblical viewpoint of what is called original sin. So a couple of categories, I think they'll be helpful as we go through this. There are four. The first category in seeing us as depraved, who we are according to what the Bible says of who we are, the Bible says that you and I are sinful by nature. You and I are sinful by our very nature, meaning you are a, you might think of a title, you know, I'm a pastor. Well, I'm actually a sinner. How cool is that? You are a sinner, but you're also actively sinful. So first, total depravity is your sinful nature in this first bullet point. Total depravity is the inevitable result of our sin. So because of our sin, we are what is called depraved. And sin is the inevitable result of our depravity. So they kind of go together. It's like a wheel that keeps turning. We're sinful and a sinner. Sinful and a sinner. What a road trip that we're all on. They go hand in hand. And you can't understand what depravity is if you don't understand what sin is. Now, 1 John chapter 3, you don't have to turn there. 1 John chapter 3, verse 4 says that sin is the transgression of God's law. Sin is the transgression of law. Sin is called unrighteousness, or sin is anti-God. In essence, sin is all that is in opposition to God. Everything that's in opposition to God, that's what sin is. Sin defies God. It violates His character, His law, His covenant. Sin aims to dethrone God. It's the attempt to overthrow the king of the universe, and it strives to place someone or something else there. And what the Bible is clear on is that you and I, this is what you and I must hold on to, what the Bible is clear on is that you and I are naturally both a sinner and sinful. So the Bible uses a variety of words to talk about sin. I'm going to give you seven of them. Collectively, they mean that we are first to miss the mark that God has established in our aim. Second, that we are unbelieving or irreverent. Uh, we, third, violate God's established limits. We fail to do what He has commanded. We disobey and rebel against God. We commit perversion by twisting one's mind against God. And finally, we commit reprehensible acts against God and Christ. So every life, including yours and mine, has missed the target. We naturally miss the target. We've engaged in sin. We disobey the voice of God. We've rebelled against Him, and he has, we have committed perversion and abomination. Isaiah chapter 53 says that we are like sheep who have, who have wandered, just gone off, and we've turned everyone to His own way. So it's not like we're just passive sheeps who are just wandering into other people's fields, but we, we see something, and we go towards it. Romans chapter 3 says that Everyone has sinned, and that all come short of the glory of God. So in part, depravity, what depravity means scripturally, is that we are active lawbreakers at every turn. That's our character. That's what this witness on the stand would testify about us. By nature, we never love God above our neighbors as ourselves, and we are, as Romans chapter 8 says, that we are hostily against God, living in active, frenetic, 
hostility toward him. And we are, as Titus 3 says, we are hateful. Friends, this is what the Bible says about us. We're not, we're not just sinful in action. Right? So we're not just doing bad things. But even worse, I want you to think external, but also in this first point, internal as well. Our depravity, our sin, our wickedness is primarily in, inward. So we're, we're working outwardly from the inside. An inwardness that stems from our profound and tragic fall in Adam. Now, when you think of sin, we, we often limit ourselves towards outward actions like murder or theft or anger or even being unkind to someone else, anything that's observable. But the Bible is much more harsh and far more radical. The, the Bible doesn't see what's outward, what's touched, what's heard alone. It goes further into the depths of human life and says that sin and depravity exist there in our soul, that sin is inside of our hearts, meaning your thoughts, your ambitions, your decisions, your motives, your aspirations, what really makes you you if you just really knew me from the inside out. The Bible says that even that is wicked and sinful. Jesus says that it's not what a man eats or touches that defiles him. It's not what he does that makes him sinful, but what comes out of his heart is what defiles him. What affects what he does from his mind is what defiles him. Actions and speech certainly miss the target, yes, but more precisely and egregiously, the, the heart of man has missed the target. Nothing boasts unbelief, selfishness, envy, perversion, and tyranny more than a human's heart. Your heart sins. Late great theologian John Calvin puts it this way, according to our nature, oil could be extracted from a stone sooner than we could perform good works from the inside out. You think of that. I mean, how many of you have actually tried to extract oil from a stone? Hopefully none of you. Why? Because you can't. Well, in the same way that we cannot perform good works of righteousness from our hearts to the outside. I want you to think about this observationally. Why are we so inwardly and outwardly depraved? How can man not produce righteousness? Well, let's return to paradise in the garden. Think all the way back to Genesis chapter 1 through 3. Now, today we're affected by Adam's sin, which happened way back then. Uh, we are affected by Adam's sin. Remember the sin in the garden where he took what was not his. He pursued what, was he, what he was not allowed to. He aimed to aspire to be what was, he was never aimed to be or never made to be. And so we inherit kind of two things from Adam's life. You think of him as your great, great, great eternity past grandfather. The first thing that we inherit from him is the guilt of his sin. It was imputed to us. The guilt of his sin was imputed to us. And this is a tough reality because I didn't know Adam. I would have told him to do something different. Surely I've learned a little bit better than what Adam would have done. If you tell me, okay, you can have all this stuff, just don't touch that one tree, I would have been like, that's great. I know how to do that. But we actually inherit something from him. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 5, verse 18, that by the offense of one man, judgment would come upon all men to condemnation. The second thing we inherit is the pollution of his sin. We're, we are so corrupt uh, by sinners before God because we have actually conceived and are born in sin. David tells us this. We, we even heard of it briefly in uh, Psalm 53, but he tells us explicitly in Psalm 51. I want you to turn in your copy of the Bible to Psalm 51 all the way to the left, kind of in the middle of the Bible. Just go to the middle, turn a little bit to the left. Psalm 51, if you're not used to the Scriptures, 
Psalm is the big word on the top of the page, and then 51 is going to be one of those giant numbers that sticks out. If you have a cool Bible, it's in a different color. Psalm 51, and then go to verse 5. This is talking about what we have received from Adam. We've, we've received from Adam this imputed unrighteousness. Judgment came upon us because of his action, but secondly, we inherit his pollution. Look at Psalm 51, verse 5. It says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. So we, we see here what's been inherited from Adam to us. And so because of Adam's sin, we're born in sin. Isaiah says that the best of our best is still filthy rags. Imagine bringing your best and it being called filthy, filthy rags by someone else. Before a holy God, it's worse than we can ever imagine. Jeremiah chapter 17 says that the heart is deceitful above all things. You at your root, you at your best, you are your most honest Placement in society is deceitful. It also says you're desperately wicked. So we got, we got big problems right from the start, especially in God's sight. We have a bad record, and we have a bad heart. And the second problem is by far the greater of the two. Luther, Martin Luther summarizes our problem well. He says, original sin, the totality of sin, is like our own beards. Now, if you don't have a beard, just pretend that you have a beard for a second. Our original sin is like our own beard. We may shave it today and look clean, but tomorrow our beard has grown again, nor does it cease growing while we remain on earth. In like manner, original sin cannot be eradicated from us, he says, because it springs up from within us as long as we live. And so we see that we are very depraved, but we're not just depraved in our actions and in our hearts. But you might think of yourself, secondly, that second bullet point is that we are impure by our very composition. What we're, ma- like what we're tangibly made of, you can imagine, is that we are impure. So second, the Bible's teaching, the second bullet point and the first point, the second bullet point, the, the Bible's teaching on depravity means that your composition is unpure, impure, meaning that sin impacts every part of us. There's just something terribly wrong, not only with who we are inwardly, but with every aspect of our being. No element of our personality is less affected by sin than any other. It's not that we've got some, you know, really terrible traits, but we've got some good redeemable qualities. He lashes out, but you know, he's really passionate about something. You know, yeah, he, he pops off on something, but it's because he just cares too much. You know, if you've ever been in some kind of interview where they say, what are, what are some characteristics that define you? And you might, you know, this is, we all know it's cynical, but you might go, I just, I just care. You know, sometimes I just care so much. You're like, what are you talking about? No one cares that much. <laughs> no element of our personality is less affected by sin than any other. You think of, you think of an amount of poison, just a little bitty drop that could be placed in your drinking water. How, how much of that drinking water is now going to be able to quench your thirst? Well, hopefully none of it, because all of it in many ways is composed of impurity. Now, hear me on one side. The doctrine of depravity, hear me on this. The doctrine of depravity is not absolute depravity. The doctrine of depravity throughout Scripture is not absolute depravity. Total depravity does not mean that men are animals or devils. They're not as depraved as they could be or even will be. Just because the Bible says that you are depraved doesn't mean you are as bad as you ever could 
could be all the time. It's a cynical joke that babies are not little angels, but little demons. It's funny, but not true. There are demons, and there are angels, and there are babies, and they are not the same. But these babies are not pure. You are not pure. Total depravity does not mean that an unbeliever is wholly evil in everything that he does, but instead, hear me on this, nothing he does is ever wholly good or wholly pure. By God's common goodness, man is capable of showing domestic affection. By God's common goodness, man is able to show civic good and performing duties as a good citizen. He's capable, man is capable, because of God's creation, man is capable of great heroism, 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 wow, Uh, (laughs) we're going to get it. Man is capable of being a hero. Men is capable of being courageous. Man is capable of doing great acts of self-denial. You can, you can look at those things and you don't have to go, wow, they did so great. They must be a believer. Or they did so poorly. They must be a non-believer. What total depravity is, is not that you are bad as you could be, but that you are by composition impure. So look, look back at the passage of Romans. Turn back to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. In verse 10, there are a couple of these passages. Look at, look at Romans chapter 3, verse 14, or 13 and 14. It says, their throat is an open tomb. You think of, you think of what comes out of your body as like a dead, decaying person in a coffin. With their tongues, they keep deceiving. The poison of their ass are under their lips. Or look at verse 18. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Under scrutiny of God and His Word, we see. Under your heart's examination, your heart, your affection, your conscience, recognizing that there will be a trial, God finds every part of you damaged and polluted by sin. Apart from God's unsaving grace, every part is alienated from God and actively pursuing sin. So what I want you to get by that is the composition of impurity is not that you've got some good parts maybe over here and then you've got some non-good parts over here, but you are in total impure. The third thing I want you to see in just understanding biblical depravity is that you were enslaved by character. Your very character is actually enslaved to this. So you're not just pursuing something. You don't just have an evil heart. You're not just impure for the top down. You're actually bound by this, the Scripture says. So the third aspect of of being depraved is understanding that the Bible describes you and your character as enslaved. It means that we are active, you could think of it, sinaholics by nature. There's no thought, no word, no act, no area of human life that is not affected by sin. Turn over to a couple of pages to Romans chapter 6, verse 16. Romans chapter 6, 16. The category of this is that we are slaves of righteousness, recognizing that first we were slaves to sin. Romans chapter 6, verse 16. Do you not know that when you go on presenting yourself to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin leading to death, so two categories here, either of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? What Paul, in writing this in Romans chapter 6, is saying that you, you are a slave whether you like it or not. The, the reality is, is that are you a slave to your own natural character, a slave to sin, or a slave to righteousness? 
Well, naturally, we're a slave to sin. Now, consider this literally for a moment. A slave was his master's property. A slave has no time, no property, no wealth of his own time or wealth of his own kind. He was always his master's property. At every moment, at every talent, with his every possession, that was entirely his master's. So Paul says, you are by nature slaves to sin. Sin was your master. Sin lorded itself over you. Sin was in control, and yet sin gives the impression that all the while you are free and in charge of your own destiny. But sin actually captures you. It holds you under. It uses the word enslaved here. So the scriptures teach of man's depravity that involves uh, what is called a moral inability. A moral inability. We are morally incapable or unable of pursuing righteousness. Why? Because we are bound in our own wretchedness. So the scriptures teaches, teaches this. And in, in and of ourselves, we're unable to do anything by our own condition. We are spiritually helpless by nature, unable and unwilling to save ourselves. We cannot appreciate the Christian faith, and we are powerless to work for our own conversion. We can do nothing, one theologian says, until the Holy Spirit forms a new will within us. Who are you naturally? Well, you are naturally enslaved, what the Bible says over and over again. Now, no matter How much the natural man is urged by law or the gospel to believe in Christ and turn from sin, we are not able to, by our own strength, to convert yourself. It is as laughable as if you were going to a huge penitentiary, finding someone without any walls or windows or even doors, stuck in a room and say, get out. That person may even want to get out. I would want to get out. And you might even say, get out. Get out of there. And they say, I want to get out of there. They can't get out of there. And that's what it's like to be bound by sin. Charles Hodge puts it movingly where he says, the rejection of the gospel is as clear proof of moral depravity as inability to see the sun at noon is proof of blindness. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 says that man is not simply going lost or dying, but rather that he is lost and is dead in the trespasses of his sins. And so our depravity is enormously creative and inventive, ever devising new ways of violating God's will. It's like a growing cancer within us, a rampant, productive, energetic fire out of control. So my dear friends, if you find yourself as a sinaholic, recognizing this hour that you are enslaved to sin, recognizing this night as you lay in bed that you are a slave to sin, you need to understand that you will be a slave to sin until God's power actually raises you from your spiritual death, opens your eyes, opens your ears, breaks the chains of depravity that will wrap you. You will not change until God acts on you. What the Bible also says is that call out to God in this moment for your chains to be broken, for your ambitions to be removed from those walls that separate you from yourself and His holiness to be taken away from you. But you have to know that that you have a great need of Christ because you cannot do anything for yourself. You are as hopeless as a baby right out of the womb. You even need an umbilical cord. And then at that point when it is removed, you still need food to be fed from you because you cannot help yourself. Now, fourth and final thing as we think about our need and who we are. Fourthly, you need to see that you are dead by consequence. You are naturally dead by the consequence of your own sin. So finally, total depravity is a stark reminder of the issue of sin. 
where the wages of sin is death. Romans chapter 6, verse 23 says, if you serve sin, if you are sin, if you will then receive the wages of sin or the payments of the sin or the consequences of that sin. This is, the, this is a moral universe, and we live and move and have our being in God. We are free agents and active understanding of who we are under God's reign. And so if you sow a seed of sin, you will inevitably reap a harvest of judgment. You sow the wind of unbelief, you will reap the whirlwind of destruction. But the Bible speaks about judgment as always imminent and always because of sin. Now, this is both a really encouraging thing. Why is judgment placed on people? Well, because of sin, not just meanically. Man, I've really got to sleep more. I can't say words today. All right, so it's beautiful, and that judgment is placed on sin because of the action of sin. But the physical act of death is utterly unavoidable because of sin. You and I have a unilateral appointment with death and God's eternal record book. The one absolute certainty about every one of us is the rendering a part of our bodies and our souls. But beyond this is a spiritual death, the rending a part of our own soul from God so that we lose this image of God and communion in Him and abide under His curse. And above all, there is eternal death where the soul is separate from the body, from God forever, without any easing from common grace. The Bible is clear that in the judgment or in the consequence of our sin, this, this death, this eternal death, is what is called hell, where it's a solemn, awesome reality of what the book of Revelation calls a lake which burns with fire and brimstone, a second death. It's that appalling cosmic incinerator into which one day God Almighty will gather those who refuse Him and place them under His undiluted wrath where everyone will be unless they deal with their sin. Who you and I are naturally is a wicked picture when placed against the glory of God. But who you and I are naturally as consequence is a haunting reality because of God's righteous and good wrath. And hell is what God ultimately thinks of impotent sin and total depravity. Now, friend, know that the Bible teaches the sinfulness of sin and depravity, but it declares that sin and depravity are irregular invariances. In the final analysis, they, sin and death are beyond all reason. They cannot be depicted as too heinous and too much of a disaster. They represent the height of spiritual stupidity and insanity, even though we naturally pursue them because of what is offered there. The magnitude of our sin And depravity exhibits the magnitude of our need of God's gospel way of salvation. So you and I must understand who we are so that we can fully answer the question, do we need Christ? I hope that just this observational examination of four simple points allows you to go, man, I didn't know I needed Christ that much, but I need him more than I ever thought possible. But it's only possible if you understand who he is. So secondly, on your outline, who is Christ according to the scriptures? Looking at who you are according to the scriptures, it's not good news. But secondly, let's see who Christ is. What you and I are left with is the necessary answer of do we need Christ? We absolutely do. On our own, left to ourselves, we desperately need him. Now, biblically speaking, a death sentence hangs over the entire human race. The entire human race is on a broad path toward destruction, rightly and justly the object of God's holy anger and wrath. 
And there will be an unleashing of fury and his vengeance as a result of this final judgment. The, the total depravity will receive this punishment. This is the state of the human race on their own. Our condition, our lives, this is where we're going. This is the lens that we can put before our eyes to see the world and to see humanity. But this isn't all that what the Bible says about man. The Bible isn't hopeless, but hopeful. And the reason why it's hopeful and that there's any hope, that there's absolute hope, that there's 100% hope in the midst of absolute destruction is because the Bible is very clear that there was one promised one long ago who would come, who would come and be the second Adam. So when you think of yourself as inheriting what Adam gave you, there would be one who would come, who would live as that Adam was called to live. There'd be one who'd come to be the fulfillment of that type of Adam, the one who would rule, the one who would obey, the one who would subject himself. He'd come into the world and be born of a woman, a virgin. He'd be born under the law where the first Adam disobeyed by eating of the forbidden fruit. The second Adam had obeyed God at every point. He was tempted at all points. You can think of Matthew chapter 3, all the totality of the way that man could be tempted. Adam was tempted and failed, but Jesus was then tempted and succeeded. One would come, and one did come, who went to the cross in order to bear our sins, the sins of his people. He would shed his own blood. And he made the only propitiation there for a fierce anger of God in the sinless life. This was a substitutionary death where Jesus actually died in your and my place, recognizing that who we are, we are to be subjected to death. He then there went to death for us. It was there that he satisfied the vengeance of God towards those whom he had died as people. And in his death, a transaction was made. He bought us. At the price of the gold and silver of his own blood. And with that death, he set us free from our tyranny. He set us free from the bondage of our sin, where he reconciled all those from whom he died to the Father and reconciled all of the Father was to them. He established peace between God and those whom he had died. And he shed his blood to wash away all of their sins to reverse the curse that you and I inherited from Adam. And through that miracle, of regeneration, he now gives a new mind that can understand, a mind that knows Christ. He now gives a new heart. He now gives a heart of flesh that was once bound to sin. Now he gives a spiritual heart of one that cries out to the Father seeking forgiveness, a heart that loves God, a heart that desires the things of God. He's given a new will by which we are now released to obey God. We have a new feet that run after God, not like feet of the one in our passage where there is no fear of God that they have known, where there is feet who are not swift to shed blood, but that there are feet who go after the one whose blood was shed. It's through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross in a sinless life, through the shedding of his own blood, that he washed away our sin and has cleansed us from all unrighteousness. And so you you have two options of reality there. Who are you? You are truly by nature a sinner, and you can be truly redeemed from the inside out by God's life. And he says in Christ that if we confess our sins, meaning if you are pitted in a corner and realize who you are and call out to the Lord in confession and believe in him as your Savior, it says that he is faithful and righteous, amazingly, to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from our unrighteousness. Don't 
go far past what you felt five minutes ago of your absolute need of Christ and understand the totality and the glory of him actually saying, if you believe in me for the forgiveness of your sins, I will forgive you of all the actions that you have committed. And I will redeem you, or what's called regenerate you. Your heart that was so impure, I will make it a heart that pursues me. You think of that. I'm in on that. That seems like a good bargain for me. Even though it cost him everything because it was everything that we placed before him. God says in Christ, come let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they be as white as snow. Though they're red like crimson, they'll be white as wool. And so at the cross, it was Jesus Christ in giving his life unto death, shedding his blood to make the only atonement for our sins. It was there that he has purged the guilt of sin from us. It was there that he clothed us with this perfect righteousness. Once wickedness, you could think naked and afraid and awful, now clothed with the very righteousness of God. And we are now presented before the throne of grace, and we are found there in full and in perfect acceptance by a father who does not pour wrath out on us, but looks at the one who he poured out wrath on and says, if you're with him, you're with me. But friends, recognize there is no news until you have bad news. There's no completion of good news until you have this bad news here. As you and I approach this Bible, this is why it's the first of five um, understandings or hopefully unfoldings of doctrine. You and I cannot approach God in his glory unless we recognize the very bad news that got us to understand his glory in the first place. There is no amazing grace until you know the weighty condemnation that was once brought upon us. Now, in conclusion, I imagine that most of you married men, when realizing you wanted to marry your wife, you went on a pursuit to buy an engagement ring. It's a huge step. It's a nervous step. It's an expensive step. It's an expensive step. Knowing it's going to be an incredible cost, you still do it. So you do research. Some don't, but some do research, and you know that a diamond ring is characterized by cut and color and clarity and carrot, and people say that, and you don't know what that means, but you, you start investigating it, and basically the, the best cuts and the best color and the best clarity and the best carrot, they're all more expensive, and nobody knows what that means, and honestly, nobody can tell the difference unless you're wearing one of those little magnifying glasses on your eye, pressing a ring up against it to your face. Nevertheless, you go into a store, you're brought into a showroom, and diamonds are pulled out, and you look at all those diamonds, and there's nothing really that captures your eye. Just a lot of rocks under glass. And they all look, let's be honest, like little tiny science projects, burnt sand. You know, why is that? Why is that so expensive? To a, natural, to a natural man, they look like clear rocks. They look pretty. They're small. But they look clear. And then something happens. A, a jeweler in a shop like this has an ability to show you exactly how beautiful, valuable, clear, and precisely cut these diamonds are. It's not, it's not a magic trick where jewelers do this to show you the grandiosity of a diamond. They're not tricking you. They're just showing you what you naturally cannot see for yourself. You need a little help to notice the glory of the diamond. And what they'll do is they'll take a diamond and they'll place a small black velvet pad underneath it. And in an instant, the splendor and the glory of the diamond is unmistakable when placed up against the black backdrop. Lights shine and glimmer. Colors burst throughout that diamond. What made the difference? Diamond didn't change. You didn't change. Nothing in the room changed. Friends, when you see yourself under the scope of sin and depravity, 
when you see your life as a backdrop of deserving God's wrath and punishment in all of its fullness, the blackness of sin and the depth of the human soul, when you see that as the backdrop behind the announcement, the proclamation of God and Christ coming to die for someone like you, where Christ came into this world to save a sinner, you naturally, it's then that you rejoice where colors come from nowhere past. You rejoice that God and Christ would ever pour out grace and mercy on you. Friends, do we need Christ? Yes. And as the hymn writer says, all I have needed, thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord unto me. Let's pray together. Our gracious and heavenly Father, we thank you that your truth from your word, as hard as it is to hear, lifts up our eyes to the Lord. We pray that you would remind us continually and desperately of the salvation that you have brought us. We recognize that we have sung and that your Bible teaches that it is from heaven that your son came and sought us and bought us to be his holy bride. And we pray and thanks that you would remind us that until the day that we die. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.